House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. I am joined by Steve Parsons, who is the co-founder of a very unique paranormal investigation um, I'm going to say group very loosely because it's an incredibly scientifically based group um, called Parascience here in the UK. So, hello Steve, welcome to the show. Good evening, Julie. Um, yeah, it is a bit cold outside, isn't it? It's a dark Friday night. Yeah, I was saying just before we went live to um, producer Albert, it's been so mild here in the UK that it's, it's a little bit of a shock, even though it's not bitter, bitter out. It's, it's still a bit of a shock to the system this week. Well, you know, I suppose all our American listeners are probably bloated full of turkey. Speaking Absolutely. of which, I bet you, uh, I was going to say, uh, Russia isn't any great fan of turkey this week, are they? No. <laughs> <laughs> What's that politically incorrect of me? I think there's quite a lot going on, isn't there, that would maybe not be quite so celebratory, etc., etc. Um, and um, I, I'm not even going to use a stuffing joke, actually. I'm going to move away from it. So... Political aside, um, I'm still waiting for the stuffing joke. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to be a little bit refined and not Smart go there. Sport. I know, I know. See, like that's what age does to me. So, I just want to kind of, yeah. I suppose, for listeners out there, because a lot of listeners are from the US, but I, but I've also got quite a following here in the UK for the show who are very aware of who you are. Um, but just the man behind the mystery, I suppose. So you've got a paranormal front, but who, who would you describe? You have to describe yourself in a couple of sentences. Who is Steve Parsons? Um, well, first of all, I'd like to apologise to any of the English listeners who do know me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and to the Americans, you're probably better off not knowing me. Uh, I, am, I, I am just... A normal everyday guy. Uh, I've been fascinated by the paranormal since childhood. Uh, I live in West Wales, which is one of the remotest western parts of Great Britain, and for uh, for the Americans, it's the bit nearest you. Um, it's only the Atlantic, which is two miles from where I am, and then the next stop is the USA, where I go every fall uh, to uh, take part in Spirit Quest in New England. So. Um, that's always a good time. I've uh, got two, two growing up ghost, ghost hunters, age five and two, and a grown-up ghost hunter, age 19, who uh, has been ghost hunting since she was age four. Wow. So uh, I think she's actually probably more experienced than I am. And she, that's my daughter, Helen, and she is a demon with mediums. She takes no prisoners. Really? Yeah. And that's age. That's how it should be. That's Absolutely. it, yeah. Um, so, well, me. so you, you, so you've mentioned your, your daughter probably knowing more than you do. So she's been brought up in your paranormal world. Mm -hmm. and I've got three kids that have been brought up in mine, and people always kind of query what that's about and how you manage it. And as a social worker as well, they people would come into the house, and one of my ornaments used to be a Ouija board. And I, I use it. I have no need to. I have no bother with it. I don't care either way. Um, it's just an ornament. Um, people would recoil in horror and say, <laughs> what do you think your kids make of it? I said, you know what? They don't give a damn. They're not worried in the least. To them, it's an ornament. It's just there. If they want to go and muck around, let them muck around. 
they're not going to do anything. So people would be really quite shocked, especially because I'm in social work, that I might have this little decorative thing in the corner. Um, so how did, how did um, Helen grow up uh, with, with your interest in ghosts? How uh, Well, um, yeah, uh, I think I can kind of empathise with the Ouija board on the wall, uh, but then it's, it's uh, growing up with me as a dad is probably a bit more extreme. Um, we have uh, crucifixes, religious artefacts uh, all around the place. We have Ouija boards. Um, in fact, has her own pet Ouija board. Uh, my two sons have got uh, teas, but they're goat teddy bear ghosts, uh, called Ghosty. Um, it's because it's all entirely normal to them. Uh, yeah. They've grown up in, in a you know in a in a world where um, spiritualism, where ghosts are, are are talked about every day. So there's no fear. There's no there's no mysticism. There's no mystique about it. It's all very matter of factly spoken about. Um, my 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 five year old, in fact, my daughter, uh, both when they were uh, you know, very young, on a on a day out, we would go looking for ghosts in the castles here in West Wales or in you know some building. It was a game, um, you know. We yeah. would we would build ghost traps out of string and Lego and sticky tape, um, and it's all terribly matter of fact. So there's no fear of the dark. There's no fear of monsters or ghosts. Because it's all entirely normal um, in in the in the world. It may not be normal in anybody else's world, of course, but uh, that's all relative. And I think it makes them better because you know, yeah, well, you know, you look at other kids and they're they're sort of uh, you know they live in in in, in a, a strange world of computer games, um, a reality, a fantasy world of. Uh, electronic devices where they're watching screens all day and um, you know is that any really any different is you know which is worse um, you know which is better I think it's you know a responsible parent is a responsible parent regardless of the you know, the hobbies the interests and a shared interest with the child is always a good thing absolutely my I've got two very um, able and I'm gonna say this in a in a way, the best way I can. I've got two very kind of mainstream children. They they they're older now. They're adults. They do their thing. They're very independent. And I've got one who's eighteen who's very dependent because he has Asperger's and and ADHD, and who sees things very much in black and white. And probably for the last couple of years now, he's started to come on investigations and things with me, and he is absolutely a one because he, like your daughter, he takes no prisoners. He it will either be there or it won't. There is no grey, there's no I'm going to have the power of suggestion influence me, it's it's not there, no that wasn't, yes it was. Um, and he's, he's amazing, and he, he's, there's no fear, he's always lived in an environment where we openly talk about, um, not spiritualism, because I wouldn't say I was religious, but certainly in, about mediumship and communication and spirits and ghosts and what people's perceptions are. So for him, it's absolutely normal stuff. And I think that's commendable. I, it's interesting you talk about Asperger's because um, it's often been uh, said by others of me, um, and in fact there was a, that, that I am, you know, I have a tendency towards um, being very meticulous, being yeah. uh, a, a touch of OCD, as my wife keeps uh, constantly tormenting me with. 
And along that sort of scale of Asperger's, um, you know, I'm definitely somewhere along the scale of it. Um, you know, my, I have a nursing qualification and I recognize the symptoms in myself. But I've said many, many times that that can be a positive advantage in, in the line of work that, or the line of hobby that I do. Because um, you know, I need to be meticulous, I need to be focused, I need to pay attention to detail. And I don't, you know, I don't really do well with distractions um, in terms of multitasking. Um, I leave that to you girls anyway. But I can be incredibly focused. And I think, you know, a, a degree of... Um, I suppose you know if you want if you if you want to label it as something somewhere on the Asperger scale is a good is an advantage, and it's probably an advantage in most in most fields of life. Yeah, I mean, he unless you want to get on with people, of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and do you know okay. people? Nah, no, nah, nah. I think you know I, I have enough trouble with dead people. Um, the living, you know, people always say it's the living you've got to worry about, and it is absolutely true. I only ever worry about living people. Um, yeah. You know, it's they—they they have always caused me far more trouble than the dead. So, so I mean, we we had um, planned actually in December to go to Margam Castle, Ooh, yeah. and for those listeners in in the US who won't know what Margam. Don't tell them, don't tell them. It's a secret. It's the coolest place on the planet. It is we an amazing want... venue to investigate. Yeah, at. we don't want Americans traveling all over it. <laughs> no, despite the fact they, they, they've been there in the war at some point, you know, we won't have them back. But we, it's, it was absolutely an amazing venue. We've investigated there several times and due to go back in December, but due to a, sort of a, a mix-up at Margam, we're now going in January. I hope I'm invited. But, you, you're more than welcome, and it's it's just one of those venues that never fails to surprise me ever. It's one of those venues that I can hand on heart go in and say I can walk out of there not understanding stuff. Um, and I know that I um, you've investigated Margam, and so, so what do what do you think of of the house itself? Well, I've had the privilege of, uh, I live uh, within an hour or so's travel of Margam, and it's a place I've, I've come to know very well. My first visit was with, um, with Most Haunted, um, yeah. and subsequently I've been back there uh, a lot, uh, including uh, a couple of years ago we had the uh, privilege of taking the Japanese documentary crew there, um, who gave us, that gave us the... the um, almost unique opportunity to have the place to ourselves for three days and three nights um, wow. in order to conduct a, long, a longer time study of, of the phenomena that are reported. Um, yeah. So that way, I mean, you know the location, it's fantastic. For those that don't, it looks, it looks like, I mean, I was expecting Catherine Zeta-Jones to walk down the staircase. It's like the set of uh, The Haunting. It's um, gorgeous. It, yeah. it is absolutely fantastic. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's a building that I've always said it's one of the uh, one of the most intriguing locations I've ever been to, and it all started from the first visit with Most Haunted. Now, people remember these television programs for all the wrong reasons that all of the stuff is is you know it, it's there for entertainment, it's television, things always happen to order, yeah, and that that is you know almost in, in, invariably correct, except that you're spending 24 hours at a location and that out of that 24 hours the public 
the, the programme only ever broadcasts an hour and then only mm -hmm. the hour that's deemed to be the best bits. Now, yeah. while we were there one night um, making Most Haunted, there had been, it was a very windy night, and uh, there'd been, uh, there's, there's different setups throughout the evening. There'd been the walk around with the medium, and then they go to the lights out, and in between, uh, people go back and forth to the crew room to refresh their makeup and refresh themselves, and also uh, to reset different, different things within the building. So they would go get a table, perhaps, and set up for table tipping. You know, all of this stuff that people don't see on camera. Well, uh, whilst, while, after uh, some filming had taken place, uh, my role as investigator, I was, re I was changing some equipment over, which meant I was on the ground floor at Margham. Um, and I presumed that uh, two members of the crew, uh, Carl and Stuart, uh, that's the producer and the rigger cameraman, uh, two of the stars of the show, for whom everything paranormal always happens, uh, they're just lucky that way. Um, <clears throat> I presume that they were upstairs resetting uh, for the next uh, sort of sequence, which was table tipping. There was an awful lot of noise. There was opening and closing of doors. There was footsteps. Um, and in fact, it was so noisy that I actually pulled out a recorder and started to record the, the noise to, to you know, later go back and say, have you heard how noisy you are? Mm. But I thought better of it and, and deleted the recording and uh, then headed back to the main crew room to get a hot drink because we were filming there, I think it was in February. Yeah. And uh, uh, when I got back there, they were all there. I had been the only person actually inside um, the castle building at the time. Wow. So whoever was making that noise wasn't one of our lot. Mm. And it's always, it's always done that, Morgan. It's always thrown up questions. Now, some of them we've been able to answer with the, with the repeated visits over the years. Um, there's one particular area that's, I think it's off limits now, the nursery, um, at the far end yeah. of the, mm. of the first floor. But periodically, you know, obviously because I've been going been there for a number of of years and we had the media access, we were able to, uh, to gain access to that area, which used to be one of the focal points of the uh, phenomena that was said to take place uh, inside Markham. Yeah. And during the time there with the Japanese documentary crew, we were able to at least come up with uh, some potential um, explanations as to why that particular room was more likely to be producing phenomena than, than others. Um, and it was down to the extremely high electromagnetic fields at that particular, within that particular end of the building itself, um, which we were able to measure and trace back to the source. Uh, now, that doesn't mean to say that that was explaining all of the phenomena that took place inside that room, um, but it certainly offers some insight into some of the potential uh, phenomena that were taking place and what had been reported there. The sort of sensations of being touched and feeling that there was somebody mm. around them, um, this, this sort of thing that was going on uh, at that end of the building, which sadly now, uh, as I understand, is still off limits. Yeah, I think it, uh, um, I think it is it's completely boarded up actually the nursery. And just for our for the sake of those people listening who hasn't haven't been to to Margham, it is a is a very large Gothic building that is inside. There's such a wonderful ornate central stairway um, that 
it's almost like it could just be put on, you know, the film Titanic. It's that kind of middle sweeping staircase that goes round, isn't it? And it's just beautiful. Um, with the arches going right mm-hmm. the way up through to the roof. And as you go back into the building, um, there is an area where the floor is deemed not to be stable. And so some of the building is completely shut off now, which is the nursery end. And you can only get into the room next door to the nursery. And um, you also have, after this very much front of house, beautiful, ornate building, there's a kind of behind the scenes part, which is almost like you would equivalent, be the equivalent to like some kind of maybe a servant's entrance almost. There's a very plain stairwell out the back that's not in keeping at all, and some quite modern um, rooms as well. But it is, um, it is one of those buildings that straight away the power of suggestion, as you drive up to that building, you're already in there. You're in the zone already thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen in here? Um, so you have to be very mindful. You have to take yourself right back from where what you're actually seeing and how that's making you, you look and feel um, because it's got all this stereotypical um, haunted building look about it, hasn't it? Absolutely. But when was the last time you were there? Um, I think it was last year. Oh, so you'll have seen it in its new guy, in interior guys um, with the film set from Da Vinci's Demons inside it. Yes. Yeah. And actually... That's- that's so cool. It is. You walk it. I mean, norm, when, when I first visited it, the inside had been damaged by fire um, what, some years ago, and it was because it was just a brick. Uh, you've got this outer stone facade, the magnificent staircase. But every, apart from that, all the rooms are just bare, yeah. um, you know, stripped back to bare brick and stone. Um, when we went there with the Japanese film crew, expecting it to look like that, once we got past the fact that... Um, Doctor Who's TARDIS appeared in the middle of the night on the front lawn because it's one of the key locations that is used by the BBC in Wales for filming Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, and in, in sort of keeping with the mystique of Doctor Who, when they deliver the TARDIS uh, to locations, it's always delivered at night in, uh, incognito without any sort of prior notice. So when people arrive the next day, it's just there. It's just um, so, so the TARDIS had appeared outside. We walk inside this, this um, expecting the bare walls, and we were straight back into Rene Sonspenis, uh, the Doge's Palace, uh, because the whole of the inside had been changed into the uh, film set for Da Vinci's, for the television series Da Vinci's Demons. Yeah. And um, it, it would completely thrill us, because there were rooms where there were no rooms before, and there were corridors that led... Um, you know, into into bedrooms and and fantastic uh, film sets, and it it was it was really really authentic to the mm. point where you know several of our of our uh, team and indeed the film crew uh, were leaning against concrete pillars uh, only to find themselves and the pillar lying on the floor when they discovered the whole thing was polystyrene and plaster. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, that was completely strange, a completely bizarre experience, a mixture of Doctor Who and Renaissance uh, Venice. Do you think it changed the um, the kind of the experiences you had there? Um, it certainly threw us, uh, you know, because we had, you know, it was a location that, that we knew well uh, and one that we'd recommended to the documentary crew. Uh, and we were going there specifically to 
test the claims that had been made of people's experiences. So what we were looking at is the experiences of other paranormal investigators, um, people who visit during the day, um, within the different rooms. And of course, we had to rethink the plan because the rooms, the, the, the whole plan to replicate and study uh, other people's experiences, well, it kind of got thrown out of the window because they were, they were having their experiences in what was a very large, empty, brick-lined space. And all of a sudden, we were expected to try and understand their experience in a much smaller 14th century you know, Renaissance palace. Uh, so it, it, it did require a little bit of uh, sort of quick thinking. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, first, certainly when we walked in and, and it changed so drastically, we were like, wow, what's going on here? And like you, is that kind of disorientation. And actually, it, it feels very different. It's um, what we expected to feel and see was different. And it certainly opened up our eyes a lot, actually, to Margam. When, we when, one, oh, sorry. We did have one amazing experience there that we never have been able to explain at all. And um, it was... And to put it into context to people out there, Margam is freezing. It's not, it's never a warm building. I've never ever walked into that building and thought, this is okay. It is very cold. And when Steve was describing everything being back to bare brick, there are many bricks missing. So, um, and this is a beautiful building that overlooks the kind of the, the dock. So the wind does whistle in. And, um, it was a very, very cold evening, and I walked into one of the rooms downstairs in Margam where one of my colleagues were, and she said, are you all right, doll? And I said, yeah, yeah, good. And she kind of put her, her arm around my shoulder. She's like nearly six foot, and she put her arm on my shoulder, and she gave me this cutch. And, um, and then she looked down at me, and she said, I'm going to have to move because I'm going to, and she swore, hit you. And she was shaking, and she walked around the room, and she literally took hold of a chair. And two guys had to take her out of the room and take the chair away. And we, there's no way we can explain that. She's one of my closest friends. But all of this, whatever happened, she was suddenly in a mindset where all she knew she needed to do was to get me with that chair. And when we took her out of the room and we went into the back room where um, she was, you know, she warmed up and she was, her eyes were so red and she was crying her eyes out. It looked like she'd been crying for years. Um, and, I don't, and I don't exaggerate that. She looked really quite rough. And we cannot explain why and how that happened at all. We just know that we were all there, party to it, witnessing it, part of it, seeing it happen. And so Margam's always got this intrigue for me. I, I always want to go back. It's such a, a beautiful and thought-provoking environment. And it's probably the only place I've ever been to that I would constantly want to go back to. Uh, I, can, I can definitely agree with the, with the sentiment. Uh, it's one place that I never, uh, never get tired of visiting. Um, I, uh, it, 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 it's a challenging location. I, I can... I have had the, the good fortune of being inside Margam when it's been a bit warmer. Um, I think, you know, I've been there in February, March, uh, December. But we did the Japanese documentary in the middle of July, and I think it was the only time I've investigated Margam in the middle of the night, still wearing a T-shirt. 
Um, and in fact, ah. it, was, it was quite welcome, the fact that it was cooler inside the building. It was one of those very, very rare um, British summer nights that we have. We have maybe, what, two or three a year over here, um, yeah. where it's warm and, and balmy. Um, so, so uh, yeah, that was, that was one night I was grateful for it being cooler inside the building. I, I, I can... There have been, you know, there's never been anything truly um, that you can put, I, that I've been able to put my finger on to say uh, with Margam, yes, that's possibly paranormal, yes, that's certainly, cha you know, that's certainly something that I can't immediately, you know, come to terms with. There was the incident I said before where there was the sound of doors opening and closing, footsteps. Um, but that night, we, you know, we did have very high winds, and there was, there's always that possibility. Uh, I've never yeah. been back when the wind has been gusting to 70 miles an hour to be able to, you know, be in a position to retest really that idea. But Markham has always thrown up the little things, the, the small uh, head-scratching moments, the, the, the subtle things that make you want to, well, why did that take place? Why did that just yeah. happen the way it did? Why did, why did they feel that way? Um, and one of the things that parasites do, which is, is something we've been doing for 20, I think it's our 22nd, 23rd year as a group, um, is we, we, we put more, we pay more attention to the, to the handwritten notes and the experiences of the team than we do with the equipment. The equipment has a role. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we measure things when they're needed to be measured. But first and foremost, we're interested in the human experience because, after all, that's what we're there to examine. Somebody has had an experience, somebody has seen a ghost or heard a ghost or you know, has had something that they cl uh, claim to be paranormal. Well, there's no point, you know, if somebody's seen a ghost, then they've had a visual experience. We don't need to go in the sound recorders. What you need to do, first of all, is to understand by being there, by trying to understand by having an experience, similar experience yourself. So we put a great deal of store by the notes. And sometimes you do get oddities within the notes or, or um, a, a commonality. Some people, you will find that a, a large number of people will highlight one particular area of the building, but they're not specific about why. They might just simply say, I don't like it here, it feels uncomfortable. And another person might say, um, I really, you know, uh, I'd rather not be here, I'd rather be at the other place. And if you ask them, well, why don't you like it in room A? They say, well, I don't really know, I just don't like it. Um, or it gives me the creeps, or it made me feel sick, or I, I, I just wanted to be somewhere else. But what they're, what they're all saying is they don't like a particular room. Uh, now, obviously, some of that might be down to the the visual clues that the, that the room is giving them. It might be, you know, a particularly unfriendly room. But we've had that where people have avoided a comfortable space in favour of a space where, you know, you're going to be standing up against damp walls rather than sitting on comfortable chairs. Um, yeah. So it's, it's the why people are avoiding something, or indeed the opposite. Why are people more drawn to a particular room than others? Um, they're the que that's what gets us interested, and they're the leads that we follow in trying to pin down the reasons why people have experiences. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, Steve, but then when we come on, I just want to build on that a little bit more, because um, 
you're entering into that the parascience para and, and how you guys investigate and I would love to talk a little bit more about that so it's going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back and welcome back and um, continuing to join me this evening is um, Steve Parsons and we've been talking about generally about investigation in paranormal um, investigations a little bit of touching on Steve's um, group parascience and how they might investigate and quite a lot on um, a venue in um, South Wales, in Port Talbot, which is investigated uh, quite frequently by paranormal groups, but is the probably the one highlight of certainly my paranormal investigation, and, um, and certainly Steve um, has a, a soft spot and a warm place for Margam also, which is um, you know, the wonderful Margam Castle and, and all that is beneath the history there. You realise um, that by saying what you've just said, you've now put the overnight price up by 50 quid. I know. It's gone down, okay. Yeah, it's gone down until you, until you just did that ad for it. Then. It has gone down. It has gone yeah. down. That's fact. What's it, what's it currently at? It was 380 this time last year. Okay, well, it's not that cheap. Um, certainly, it may be 380 to yourself, but it, um, last year to us it was 600 with the... What? With the classroom, yeah. Seriously? Seriously, and this year it's down to five-something. Oh, my God. A year ago, we were paying 380 and that included the full insurance package. We've been through Margam now for the last maybe four to five years, on and off, and it's always been five to six hundred pounds. My God. They put it up from 300 to 380 last year. Um, so when you said, and I thought that was reasonable... Yeah. Uh, in comparison to other British places like Woodchester, you'll pay close to a thousand pounds for the night. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, you know you don't even get a bowl of cornflakes for that. Yeah. Um, but with with Margam, I thought you know because it's a council-owned building, a local authority-owned building, that 380 was you know on the it was on the the reasonable side of just affordable. Yeah, um, definitely. But, and, but and I didn't realise. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realise that we'd get a discount. Yeah, you clearly do. Thank you, Steve, for that. Um, oh, well, there you go. Yeah, actually, we, we, we booked Margam in, I think it must have been about March time, and unfortunately, although we continued to kind of hound them with um, their paperwork, etc., they they then double booked everything. So I think they've had a lot of changes this year that have caused them to be a little bit um, probably um, less easy to, to book onto than normal, but um, generally the service there is really good. Only had two two problems this year with the, with the double booking and one maybe about four or five years ago where we all turned up and no no security arrived to let us in, um, and we'd had people travelling from Norfolk which was a little bit of a pain. But apart from that, that's uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's an amazing venue and certainly worth booking onto. Um, but just just coming on to um, your own investigation and your investigation styles and places that you would. Um, you enjoy going to. I know that you've run several courses. I've been on one of them in terms yep. of um, investigation. But tell our listeners what you believe to be an ideal way of investigating in a snapshot. In a snapshot, um, gosh. Uh, well, you're there first. You are only there to investigate because somebody has had an experience. You know, this idea of just going somewhere because it looks old and damp and haunted or it's got, you know, there's a murder taking place. You're, you know, is the wrong way to be uh, 
considering an investigation. If somebody's had an experience that they believe or they claim to be paranormal, then the role of the investigator is to test that claim and to try and understand the nature of the experience. So that is the starting point for every investigation. And, of course, as it's a human experience, the last thing that we take out of the box are the ghost toys. Um, because you don't need them at this stage. You've got nothing to measure. The only thing that you have to deal with is an account, a testimony from a human uh, being who's had an experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first stage has to be to go along, to examine the location, to spend time at the location, and to see if you, as another human being, in the same place, at the same sort of time, under the same sort of general conditions, have an ex uh, can see or have a similar experience and try and understand it. Because ghost investigators, they're a bit like ufologists in many ways, because you are never there uh, or when the original witness has their experience. So you're always playing catch-up, you're always chasing the game, you're always behind the curve. Uh, you, ha you are entirely reliant on what you're being told by the witnesses uh, and what their experiences are. And you have to put your beliefs, your own expectations, your own agendas, you, know, you have to leave them behind. If you're a skeptic, then you're going to be naturally more dismissive of somebody's account. Um, mm -hmm. They saw a ghost. Oh, there's no such thing as ghosts. So you're already biasing your objectivity. Likewise, if you're a believer, if you're inclined to believe and somebody says they saw a ghost, oh, wow, you saw a ghost. So you're again, you're biasing any experience that you have. All you yeah. have is the information from the person. They saw something, they heard something, they, they, they were touched by something, they felt a presence. That's all you have to go on. You know when they were, where they were, you know when they were there, so you try and be there at a similar sort of time, under similar sort of conditions. You know, if people are watching this idea of turning the lights off, um, and wandering around buildings in the dark. Well, well, of course, I mean, that applies if the building's dark to begin with, and there's mm -hmm. no electricity. But if somebody's been watching their favourite soap opera at 8 o'clock uh, in the evening, sipping a glass of their you know, favourite red wine, and they see an apparition, um, why are you there at 3 o'clock in the morning looking, looking at the world through your full-spectrum camera and trying to talk to the ghost with an EVP? Yeah. Uh, you're completely wasting your time. Because you, you, you're going to find things that were never there to be found anyway, and you're going to spend time, you know, misleading yourself and everybody else. So that's the basis of parasites start on, which is to start from the human experience and work, work from that. We take our lead, I guess, from archaeologists, because if archaeologists are looking for old structures, they start, you know, they're following something. They start with what they know and work towards the unknown. Paranormal investigators. Um, seem to have reversed it and they start with the unknown you know, mm. somebody sees a ghost uh, in the middle of the afternoon while they're working in an office so they all troop in at three o'clock you know, overnight they turn all the lights off and then they start saying is there anybody there oh I've got an EVP saying you know, you're all going to hell and, uh, and I've, got these, I've got these shadow people on my infrared camera well that wasn't what was ever seen that what wasn't whatever was ever reported. So, who's misleading who here? Yeah, definitely. 
So, I mean, you have some amazingly big groups in the UK, don't you, that have 40 or 50 people on them for an investigation. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, a whole, well, it's, it's not an investigation, it's just a mockery and a money... It's a circus. Thing. It's a circus, yeah. isn't it? I mean, it's not just here in the UK. Um, we have no. exactly the same situation. I was, you know, there, there, when I was over in New England, but there were groups in New England, um, I was 80 people. In a, in a very small building, a very small property. Ah. And what you've got is, in, in actual fact, I, think, I don't think the situation's very different either side of the Atlantic, um, because the vast majority of paranormal investigations these days are actually public uh, access events, they're marketing events, um, you know, tickets are sold, the events are promoted on Facebook and social media, tickets are sold, um, and a large number of people who are not part of the group are turning up and they are being taken or dragged from room to room and shown you know in this in this session we're going to do table tipping then we're going to go and do some EVP then I'll, we'll let one or two of you peer through the full spectrum camera then we'll get the bobbly thing with the flashy lights um, and we'll you know we'll talk out and then our group's resident, resident sensitive will sense something in the corner of the room <laughs> and then we'll have a then we'll have a tea break, and then you can do some table tipping. It's, it, you know, it's, that's what happens. And then they all say, "Of course, we're not for profit." Um, yeah. Yeah, I've done the maths. I know how much a lot of these locations are. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, obviously not with Margam, um, <laughs> as I demonstrated earlier. But it's very easy. You, you can phone see up the venue and say, "You know, I've, I've done that myself." You know, some years to go. Where you, you want to go and investigate these places, and the only way you can afford maybe a thousand pounds for a seven hour stint somewhere is to ask other people to come along. Well, so you can see true. how people get into that cycle, um, and we've completely gone the other way, and actually, we don't invite anybody with us um, because I just, it's, it, for me, it's, it's not what we're there for. So you have to come back to actually what is our belief, what is it we're trying to achieve, what is it we want to go for, and it certainly isn't to take, you know, 30, 40, 50 or 60 people or even 10 people around a building. It, that isn't what I'm there for. So, um, you know, we kind of went straight away from being very naive in that and then this is how we're going to afford to pay for the, the, the venue to now it's like, you know, if, if the money isn't there to go and pay, pay for the venue, we don't go to the venue. Because you have to have a, some sort of benchmark as to what it is you're there for. I think what we've got to make, I've got to make a, a, a clear distinction between uh, going there for the purposes of conducting an investigation. Yeah. Uh, which, which is completely different from, for example, one of the things that you've been on, one of the courses, because there are, are an awful lot of people, you know, despite what I've just said about me and the groups, uh, within every group there are people who are dedicated and who are interested and who are yeah. you know, fascinated by what the paranormal means and they have a, you know, a whole raft of different questions that they want to ask. Um, it, it, uh, they might just want to get a, an understanding at a personal level. Everybody might have different questions and they need the opportunity to be able to, to explore those questions and to be able to um, I hope learn some of the the basic steps that are, that would help them with an investigation. Now, with ghostology and with the the the, uh, the courses that I've been involved with, 
um, there is a clear difference between investigating um, using the group parasites and facilitating uh, good practices by people who are you know who are interested. Now, I'm not arrogant or, or naive enough to want to tell people this is how you you do ghost hunting. You know, my method works for me. It works very well for parasites uh, because I've told them it works for parasites and won't be telling them if it doesn't. Um, but every group, every individual has got to answer their own questions. Every group has got to find a method that works for their own group dynamic, because some groups are, you know, they're they're they're, they're looking for different things. They have their own their own questions. What ghostology has always tried to do is to say is to offer people uh, the foundations, the basic building blocks of good practice how they then put those Lego blocks of good practice together, what they make from those blocks, is down to them and down to their group. Um, so I think there is a difference. You can do larger sort of events where you are, you know, edutainment. Uh, but that's completely different to where I have a problem with are groups who, who do that under the guise of investigation they claim you know they will they will advertise that people are going on a real investigation um, and with 30 40 50 people and more you just are not and the 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 problem is that you are that what happens is participants are dragged led from room to room location to location and as i said before you know it's divided up into a very set pattern we'll do we'll do calling out we'll do evp we'll do We'll do, you know, the, the laser grid. Uh, we'll do some of the even more bizarre ones, the human pendulum, um, which when I first heard of this, you know, my, my heart sort of leapt and sank at the same time. I had visions of them swinging the medium on a rope from the rafters, but you know, sadly <laughs> that didn't take place. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> um, you'll have to read my book, Ghostology, to find out more about the human pendulum. But... Uh, it was, you know, it, it's not, it's not something I invented. It's something I, I, I came across, and uh, it was very, very enlightening, and would make a, you know, from a, from the point of view of a psychologist, uh, it makes a fascinating experiment to see done, as indeed many of them do. Many of the experiments that that are carried out by by investigators are actually, you know, they're fascinating to watch, um, to watch the interact interaction between people. Um, and watch them dealing with their own expectations, watch them satisfying their own beliefs. They're hearing, you know, they will hear things, you will have, you know, a group of ten people, five of them will hear one thing, the other five won't hear necessarily anything at all. Um, but gradually, by, by a process of uh, group conformity, by persuasion, by repetition, they all start to hear the same thing. Um, it's like with the Ouija board as well. You know, it spells out gobbledygook. Yeah. You know, it spins round and round and jumps backwards and forwards. Kx, 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 um, until somebody makes sense of it and realizes and says, "Oh, um, because you're a 17th century spirit, does that mean that you're illiterate?" Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's okay. So now, so all of the bad spelling, we can we can we can get around that now because you're an illiterate 17th century spirit. And other cuckoo ideas as well. I mean, I, I went to a, an investigation uh, at a location in Scotland where the the 
apparition that people say haunts the location is a, a little uh, girl, a little five-year-old girl from the 17th century. Um, mm. And some, one of the groups decided that they would bring along a trigger object, uh, this idea that you can uh, evoke or provoke a response from the spirit realm by presenting them with something that, that they will interact with. Um, so they brought along, because it was a little girl, because it was a you know, child, they brought along a toy. Um, yeah. and you, can, you can see the thinking behind this. You, know, you yeah. can go along with it until you realise that they, they reached into the bag and pulled out a Buzz Lightyear doll. <laughs> now, you know, I don't know quite what a 17th century child would make of a Buzz Lightyear. I don't imagine they would be immediately drawn to it. Um, <laughs> and it it's just sort of, that's, that's what ghostology is about. It's about, you know, come on, put a little bit of thought into what you're doing. You can, all of the great breakthroughs in, in amateur science, in astronomy, in archaeology, in, in chemistry and physics have been made by amateurs. The academics only come along later and claim the glory and, you know, uh, you know mop up the, the Nobel Prizes. And it's the same within the paranormal. There are huge advances, there are huge areas uh, where we have no understanding and the academics really aren't interested in going there. Uh, so what so there is an opportunity for investigators, and there are thousands of really good investigators, dedicated mm -hmm. investigators, um, but they need to up their game. They need to produce results that they can then take to the scientists, to the academics, and challenge them with them. It's no use saying, oh, well, we got this really cool video um, last Friday night, and then discover that the clock on your camera or your sound recorder um, was set for you know the first of January two thousand because nobody bothered to set the date and time properly. It's those yeah. little basic things. Yeah. They're the sort of things that make what you're doing credible and meaningful. Uh, that you can show the skeptics uh, that you have considered the flaws, considered that you are in fact not in a controlled environment, and that you have taken steps to mitigate some of the problems, um, and given. Your, your evidence a, a degree more credibility for, for doing that. If you're going to measure something, people often measure, for example, temperature. It's yeah. very, very common, uh, commonly measured. And one of the few things that I honestly believe investigators should, should spend a great deal of time focusing on measuring. But nonetheless, people will measure temperature. And they are measuring it in, in a way that the results are meaningless. You cannot just wander around a room armed with a laser thermometer or, a, or an air probe thermometer, um, you know, blindly taking the temperature and putting it down in a book. So, uh, any environmental researcher, any environmental scientist, any you know, HVAC engineer would look at you and, and laugh and say that your measurements are meaningless. But if you measure in a different way, if you measure temperature to a given set of uh, standards and those standards have existed for for tens of years and they're internationally agreed and laid down within legislation the ISO uh, standards if you measure your temperature to that to that standard using the right sort of thermometer then your data is meaningful mm. and then you can challenge the skeptics who turn around and go well there's no evidence you say well actually there is the evidence made with a calibrated thermometer um, and obtained to the relevant ISO standard, and then watch the and then watch the skeptics squirm. But that level of knowledge that you have, which 
sounds very much, it's, in fairness, it's, you know, a common sense approach to an investigation of, you know, that, that's, that, as you said, is credible and has a scientific background, etc. Have you always had that, Steve? Did you always know that from day one? Or is there, has there been a progressive um, learning through your own experiences in investigation? I'll be honest, that was, that was from day one. Um, and that was why Parascience was set up the way it was. Um, it was set up 22 years ago by myself and Anne Winsper because uh, we, were, we had both met in an amateur paranormal group. Uh, I had come from industry and nursing, um, where you're used to working to, you know, my qualifications are measuring things within industry. You know, I have degree qualifications in measuring you know, stuff, uh, temperature, humidity, pressure, all of those things that, that ghost investigators need to measure. Um, I have medical qualifications. I am a registered nurse. And they mean that I have to work to very precise tolerances when measuring and observing you know, the human being. Um, now, that's how, that's, so that's my, that's my, my, my uh, sort of foundation. And, it, you know, I'm as a pharmacist. And again, you have to work to very precise tolerances. And we took that into, you know, once we saw that the amateur group that we were in, involved with at the time were they were just wandering around aimlessly in the dark looking for ghosts uh, we realized that it was never going to progress it was never going to get anywhere um, and that there was already a method that that, that worked um, the scientific method and you don't have to be a scientist to do the scientific method uh, the scientific method is really really simple it's, you know there are five very simple steps a monkey can do science mm. you you know it's simply observe uh, or you know observe a phenomena um, then you you hypothesize about what might be taking place then you test for that hypothesis then you find out whether you know were your test supportive or uh, negative of the hypothesis um, then you, you you may necessarily go back and repeat the rehypothesize retest and then reach a conclusion we did it at high school. We did it. Everybody did it at high school. We all used to do it in our textbooks. You remember in our science books, you would write down that's the name of the experiment, the aim of the experiment, the equipment you were using, the method, the results, and the conclusions. Every high school and secondary school child did it. And yet, when they become ghost investigators, uh, all of a sudden, then walking around in a building saying, Can you hear me? Uh, if you can hear me, say my name. Can you tell us how many people are in this room with us? Oh my God, it said five. Mm. That's not evidential. I, I was at, not Margan, but another castle in West Wales uh, last year with a paranormal group. Uh, a paranormal events company would be more accurate because you know, there were 30 or 40 people there eating, eating rich tea biscuits in the middle of the night and being herded around the location. And one of the experiments that they were taking to see was... Um, two light-up polystyrene balls with coloured flashing LEDs in on springs, on long springs. They look like the old-fashioned Dealey boppers from the 70s. <laughs> um, that they got from the pound shop, you know, the, the dollar store, um, and they, they put them and they said, you know, can you make the bobbles, can you make the balls flash and light up and bounce around? Well, it was a windy night. These things were on springs. What did they think was going to happen? <laughs> That's, that is not evidence of the paranormal. That's evidence of a distorted, warped mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it's very, very possible. You know, 
instead of instead of chasing flashing bobbly balls on stri- you know on springs, do some serious investigation, and you don't need to measure anything because what you're really there at the end. The most important thing for for parascience is is the team's written notes. Um, we we what we do with our team is, and we've always done right from from day one. We can give it a cool name now. Um, is we get them to to tweet um, every two or three minutes. They have to write a sentence or two describing you know how they feel physically and anything that you know anything that's popped into the head. Now that might be that they hate me for making them write these damn notes. Uh, it could be that they're hungry. It could be that they're bored. That they need the toilet. It could be a whole you know, million and one different things. Um, yeah. But they have to write something. You know, failure to write something just means that they're dead. Uh, mm. To find out more about our show, we don't even mind if they fall asleep, providing they remember to write down what they, if they dreamt about anything when they wake up. Yeah. Because it's about the human experience. Somebody saw a ghost. Somebody heard a sound, somebody had an experience that they believed to be paranormal. It's about testing that claim by being there. So you, do you believe in ghosts? Uh, there is absolute... Well, I, I'm going to quote you from... from I, I keep plugging it in the hope that somebody will buy the damn thing, but in fact, well, it's only just coming out this week, so uh, you'd have a hard, hard job. Ghostology, which is um, uh, my second book this year, um, the first book being Paracoustics, but yeah. it, within the introduction, um, there is there is a small paragraph that says, and it's 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 subheaded: ghosts exist because everyday people experience ghosts. They see mm. ghosts, they hear ghosts, and they interact with ghosts. Um, our problem is, what are ghosts? Because yeah. one person's experience and description of a ghost might be completely different than another's in terms of the mechanism. You know. A few days ago, I, I was sitting downstairs in the living room uh, um, here, and Elizabeth Taylor appeared in the corner of my room. Um, you know, she was she was talking, and she was you know a vision of loveliness in full colour. Um, at no point did I believe she was a ghost. You know, it was clearly the television. But yeah. what the point I'm making is, ghosts don't always necessarily equate to survival of death. It might be some form of replay. It might be some form of hallucination. It might be some sort of waking dream. It might be dead people coming back. We just don't know. And if anybody tells you that they know what a ghost is, then they're, they're, they're making it up. Because we still don't know what ghosts are. I mean, let's look at some of the definitions. According to the Oxford Dictionary, uh, the, a ghost is an apparition of a dead person, which is believed to appear or become manifest to the living, typically as a nebulous image. Now, that's what the Oxford Dictionary says. And yet we've got lots of examples in which apparitions of living people have appeared. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are lots of apparitions that are far from nebulous. We, we have lots of... Uh, you know, I mean, there are almost as many definitions of what a ghost is as there are people. Yeah. Uh, you know, parapsychology... Um, you know, they consider the study of ghosts to be related to aspects of survival beyond death. But there's actually very little to indicate that ghosts are entirely visions of the dead. Um, they could be hallucinations. We, we just don't know. Uh, but there is no doubt that ghosts exist. 
and certainly as a medium, I can't say to somebody, I know this is coming from a ghost. I know what I know. I don't, I can't explain it in any other way other than I have information that comes into my head that I know. I, whatever that information may be and whatever it may tell me about somebody else, whether that person be living or, or, or dead, I can't always tell that, but I know what I know. So the closest thing to that that I could ever say is that I'm a medium because people I know the information is coming from, or it relates to, quite often, people that have passed over. But that doesn't mean I can absolutely hand on heart say, I am absolutely 150% certain that this information is coming from a dead relative. Well, I just I know I get information and I can then give that information. Yeah, and I think it's important that, you know, objective investigators don't rule out mediums. You know, there is this, there is this sort of snobbery um, within parapsychology and within some, some investigators that because you are a scientifically focused investigator, that you are somehow anti-psychic anti or anti-medium. Now, you know, those that know me well know that I have nothing against psychics and mediums. It's, you know... Yeah. They are, you know, they are poor, deluded, misguided fools. But nonetheless, I have no, I'm only kidding. I have nothing against them at all. In fact, I work closely with, with you know, with psychics and mediums. Where, the, where I do take exception and where I do issue caution is where a group might have a resident psychic or a resident yeah. sensitive, and then they pay too much attention to that person. Now, when when somebody is is um, having an experience when you as a psychic and a medium have an experience then yes. it is it is uh, entirely right and vitally important that we document your thoughts your impressions and your belief that this is a psychically gained impression however it is just as important to record and document the experiences the thoughts the beliefs and the ideas of everybody else and to give them an equal amount of, uh, of weighting and bias. You know, just because, um, and no disrespect, but just because you say that you're a medium doesn't mean that your information is any more significant than, than our, you know, the guy that operates the camera or the, or the, the person who's, you know, has you know, never said that they have any psychic ability and they're just there to make the tea and have a spooky night out. Absolutely. It, it is all vitally important information that, you know, you throw away at your peril. If you are stupid enough to disregard the words of a psychic or a medium, then woe betide you're, you know, you're not an objective investigator. But you're equally, you know, cautioned just because somebody says they're a psychic or a medium, don't just take their word for it. Mm. And don't put them on a pedestal. No, absolutely. I agree, totally. Totally. I think that everybody... Is open to challenge whether you're, you know, you're scientifically investigating, whether you're contributing to that as, as, and with your own thoughts and feelings as a medium. You know, I, I always say to people, never take what I say at face value. Always challenge what I'm saying. Never, because I need to challenge what I'm, what I'm presenting as well. Um, you know, don't ever put too much weighting one way or the other. Um, and then, interestingly, recently I was undertaking an interview and. We were talking about the use of psychics in criminal investigations. And I'm actually quite opposed to that. And this particular person was saying, well, actually, no, a lot of 
police forces um, in the US would use, you know, mediums, psychics, probably wouldn't advertise it too much, but they, they do use them. Whereas over here, that's, you know, a lot less likely. And we've, we've seen psychic detectives, etc. and, you know, Tony Stockley did a, a series on, on that, on his psychic school. But where, for me, I, I just, it's very uncomfortable. And I, I don't think that that amount of waiting in such a critical situation should be given to one person or one thing. It's a, it's a combination of. Um, just, just kind of going back to, because I asked the question about how, whether you, you kind of have always started off your paranormal career knowing this stuff and following those scientific guidelines or whether they evolved. Um, how would you say you have evolved um, if you started quite, yeah, in this quite sensible and, and, and grounded position saying, actually, you know, these are the rules of investigation. This is how it has to be. This is how it's credible. How have you then evolved in terms of um, maybe being more open to to the grey area of mediumship, etc. Has that evolved, or has that again always been installed in you as a as a young person? Um, well, I grew up where um, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I grew up in a family of spiritualists, um, right. but I don't think that affected me in any way because, as I say, I wasn't aware of it. I don't have any sort of recollections of that. I yeah. I think you know, when, whenever you start investigating the paranormal. Um, there is a, a very steep learning curve because you are dealing with, you know, my outlook was to be objective, uh, but, you know, you have to be mindful that I'm a human being and therefore, you know, frail like, like every other human being. I was, was initially in some very uh, unusual situations. You know, you're in a building that's unfamiliar, you're there at a time that's, that's uh, unfamiliar, you know, because... But by and large, you are tending to be there out of hours after dark because that might be the only time that you can get it, or indeed it might be the time when people uh, have reported phenomena that you're interested in. And there is that sort of uh, human element of, uh, oh my God, what was that noise? Uh, what was that sound? And a tendency... Don't we all want to see ghosts? You know, I mean, we can wrap it up any way we like. You know, we all want to sort of be highbrow about it and say, well, I'm a scientist and, you know, of course I'm, I'm interested in finding out, you know, why people have these experiences. You know, at the end of the day, the reason that we all do it, um, if you strip away the veneer, is that, you know, hey, we want to see a ghost. I want to see the headless lady walk down the corridor as much as everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um... Have, have, yeah, of course, inevitably, I mean, I've been doing this for uh, 35 years, uh, Parasigns being 23 of them, 22 of them now, um, but, you know, personally, 35 plus years, um, and it, it has changed me. I'm, I'm not as cynical um, as I probably was many, many years ago. Uh, I'm also not as gullible as I was many, many years mm -hmm. ago. I'm not as, um, I don't think I'm as closed. I think it takes, a, it's very easy, and I've said it very many times, that you have to set aside your own beliefs, and you have to lay your own beliefs and expectations and prejudgments at the door of the haunted building before you enter 
and conduct an investigation. That's a very, very easy thing to say. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, and I think after all of the, all these years, I can now say I am able to, most of the time, uh, leave my prejudices aside and, uh, and investigate objectively. And that means, you know, uh, unbiased. That means that I can accept at face value what, you know, what is seemingly strange and bizarre without prejudging it. And equally, I can consider... Uh, you know, critical evidence in a way to unpick it, and I, it, it, it's been noticed when when watching some of the television programs or reading some of the case files. Uh, my approach is uh, through practice. You know, is is different than other people's now because of that experience, and it is something that you can only get through experience. Uh, mm. You know, you can't. You can't get qualified as a ghost hunter. There are no qualifications as a parapsychologist. You know, people can call themselves CEO of this group and technical director and investigations coordinator and all of the other grandiose titles that they want to call themselves. Uh, but you're still a human investigating another human's experience. You've done a lot of work, Steve, in terms of um, research with parascience, and one of um, probably the most well-known to me is your work on orbs, or yeah. orbs in inverted commas, um, because it's something that I've always not agreed with at all. That an orb is something paranormal, but so when you when you you wrote that, it was obviously something of, of personal interest to me because it's something that I've always struggled to understand and believe so how um how did that come about what i mean because as an investigator i'm sure the similarity one similarity that we probably could say between you and i if i'm sure there are many but one definitely will be people have to present you with pictures of these orbs oh, yeah. and say to you <laughs> look at this and you oh yeah blankly back like what no, um, no, 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 no. I've learned. I've learned. I'm, I, have a, I have an answer now. Uh, I get what? you off the hook answer. Uh, probably uh, to any other investigator who gets pictures of orbs thrust in their face uh, during an investigation, go, hey, Mr. Skeptic, explain that. Just look at them and smile and go, that's an orb. Uh, <laughs> they'll go away happy and you don't have to explain it. <laughs> Well, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that every time somebody walks towards you, you know what's coming out of this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or a photo. Or... Yeah. So, um, so, I'm sure, though, this wasn't just frustration that led you to the paper, but just for our, our listeners, please, and I know how in-depth your paper is on orbs and the technical side of it, which I couldn't even proclaim to be near, but tell us about your investigation into it. How long did it take? And okay. You probably had to learn quite a lot to get your head around all of the technical stuff, I would imagine, as well, um, in order to to pull the paper together. Um, I, I, well, yes. I mean, it starts back in the, in the late 1990s. Um, Parascience had invested uh, in a, a, a digital camera. Uh, back then, it was 0.8 megapixel. So, state of the art, took five pictures on a floppy disk. Um, and we paid well over a thousand pounds for it. Wow. Yeah. Um, and we started to get these little glowing circles of light on some of the pictures. Um, naturally we were intrigued, you know, this was something we hadn't seen photographically. 
Um, they only seem to appear in, ha you know, in haunted houses, which is probably because we were only taking pictures with the camera in haunted houses. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, they were intriguing. Uh, and we were left sort of with, with some questions. Did, was this... Was this new technology able to show us something that was, uh, you know, unusual? Were, were we getting an insight into the paranormal uh, or some aspect of the paranormal with this camera? Um, but then what happened was, wherever we took the damn thing, we got these little circles of light. These little <laughs> blobs every on. It didn't matter whether we took them at home, uh, whether we took them in haunted locations, um, these little blocks, you get to the point where very quickly you think, hang on, if it's happening that often, it's not going to be paranormal. Uh, mm. Not unless, not unless the, you know, the, the atmosphere is saturated with ghosts uh, who all come back as soap bubbles. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I for one really don't That's want to come planning. back. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't fancy an afterlife as a soap bubble. So, it's not, you know, very what, not, no. not very lovely, is it? No, if that's what's on offer, to come back as a stone-throwing soap bubble, then death I want to be fine. But nonetheless, <laughs> so in the late 90s, we were faced with this conundrum. We, so we sent off a batch of pictures that we'd taken to Sony, the camera manufacturer, and said, hey, what do you make of it? And they went, well, we haven't seen this before. Uh, we don't think it's a, a fault or defect with the camera. Well, of course, that made it more intriguing, uh, but we were still not too, not too happy about it. What we did notice quite quickly is that wherever we, we were in an environment that was misty or it was raining um, or indeed occasionally, you know, an insect that we knew was there had gone past the camera, uh, then we, could, we were starting to, the, the light started to go on and we started to realise that what we might be dealing with is a simple optical reflective uh, phenomena. So we started to do some rudimentary experiments. We started blowing talcum powder in front of the camera and we started just seeing what would happen if you know if this is what would take place and mm -hmm. we very quickly realized that you know that was the case so we set out a series of experiments uh in order to define and to test the idea properly and those were the ones that we got to in, up to about 2003 where we produced the first draft of the paper and the results which are available uh on the parasites website and have been published elsewhere also and they basically said, we've, we're absolutely convinced that uh, the vast majority of these phenomena are entirely natural in their, in their production, that they're uh, moisture, that they're pollen, that they're dust, that they're all this sort of rubbish that floats around in the air, and the occasional thing with wings, and I don't mean angels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we couldn't definitively prove that you know, there wasn't a very small percentage that weren't, you know, unusual in some way, that weren't even potentially paranormal, but we, you know, we'd eliminated in our own mind a, a big chunk of them. But we'd always had in mind an experiment that we, we, we tried uh, several times to, to design back in the early 2000s using stereo uh, photography. We, we had stereo film cameras within the team, but we didn't have stereo digital cameras, and what we needed to do, of course, was to replicate... Um, a stereo digital camera and it couldn't be done using two, two uh, digital cameras side by side for technical reasons they, the results would not be 100% identical therefore there was a flaw in the experiment um, right. but in 2000 I think it was 2007 uh, 2008 
we got wind of a camera, a 3D stereo camera that was being produced by Fujifilm in Japan. And so we, we, got, we actually got in touch with them and started begging them. And eventually we got one of the very first ones in the UK. And we, we had to go to London to collect it. We were coming back on the train from London, um, on the uh, Great Western uh, train. And I, I put a battery, put the battery into the camera, I was playing around with it, playing with the instruction manual. And I took a picture, and on the screen of the camera, uh, I could see an orb. And I knew, I knew at that point in time, that we'd already demonstrated the camera uh, was going to work. And what, what it basically is, is that uh, in order for, to, to prove that these phenomena are airborne and close to the camera reflecting the flash, and not at the opposite end of the room flying over Auntie Florence's head, or flying out of the dog's bottom, or wherever else they appear, um, and therefore paranormal, that they're very, very close to the lens of the camera being, you know, reflecting the light of the camera. And so we took, I think it was 18, 1,800 stereo pictures, which is 3,000 and odd, uh, close to 4,000 uh, stereo individual images, uh, in order to be able to demonstrate this. And then to date, we've, we've actually taken over 10,000, and we still use the camera regularly. Uh, you know, we might find a paranormal one one day. Um, but it's always surprised me that nobody else has, um, has used stereo photography as an investigative tool uh, because there are lots and lots and lots of ghost photographs that are offered up. And photographs are two-dimensional and actually give you almost no information at all. Uh, Harry Price, uh, back in the 1930s, the great investigator, uh, ghost hunter Harry Price, one of the cameras that he used, uh, although primarily inside the sales room photo uh, photographing mediums, was a stereo camera. And of course, can you imagine how much useful information we would get from a shadow person that was taken with a 3D camera, as opposed to a two-dimensional uh, stereo, uh, a two-dimensional photograph? So we still use the camera. So it, it, it basically, what I'm saying is, um, we have taken over 10,000 pictures, and we have a 0% paranormal hit rate. Uh, you know, groups, investigators will, will console themselves by often saying that 99% you know, of the of orbs are dust and moisture and insects and other known phenomena, but 1% are paranormal. What they're really saying is everybody else is a rubbish and the, you know, theirs is the 1% and the ones that they've got on their website or yeah. on their Facebook page are paranormal. Um, when in actual fact, that's just not the case. What was also interesting using the 3D camera um, was that we were able to see other phenomena that have appeared as paranormal. For example, on one occasion, um, the strap from the camera had fallen across the lens uh, and produced one of these sort of spirally bright white vortexes, vortices, mm -hmm. uh, that, that used to be so quite common in, in paranormal photography. Um, and yet, we were able to, you know, we were 100% sure it was the strap because it wasn't on the other um, stereo, the uh, stereo, the other stereo image. Likewise, there was a hair, um, a human hair that had got in front of the image, um, and also breath because it wasn't the same on both on both the left and right images. So we were able to, although we haven't, we haven't, you know, we've never pursued those other lines of experimentation because you know we were after demonstrating unequivocally. That the orb was, you know, despite what uh, people write down, as you're looking at the bookshelf here, um, you know, we have the orbs, um, ascension through orbs. Uh, there's a whole raft of ludicrous books written about them, where 
they, are, they represent angelic beings. That you can tell the, the sex of the orb by the colour of the orb. Uh, that people see faces in them. That, you know that, that they are that they are you know otherworldly beings. In fact, I'm just trying to reach for one here now because there's there's, there's you know. one orb is called Lord Gautama, um, and that some orbs are worlds. And you know, it's a whole book here. It's got twenty, you know, thirty something chapters. Uh, about you know how orbs into Archangel Metatron focuses on peace. In a, this is an orb picture. Um, oh God! How, yeah, I mean, come on, people. Yeah, what are they on? Uh, well, they're on something. Well, they're on something. It's got more than forty percent proof. <laughs> yeah, they're just, just dust. And the reason that we did it was not to ridicule these people and their beliefs, but it was to say, you know, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about doing meaningful uh, research, doing meaningful, uh, collecting meaningful uh, information and evidence. You know, how many thousands of hours have been wasted by people sitting in front of a computer, blowing up pictures and fiddling with them in Photoshop, <laughs> determined to see a photograph of a demon in an orb, you know, when instead that, you know, Stop wasting time with the known and go and look for the things that we genuinely don't know anything about. And I said temperature before because it is the one physical phenomena that has been documented and properly recorded. If we go right the way back to the early part of the 20th century, people within the sounds room and people within haunted houses using the correct equipment, um, you know, properly calibrated thermometers, were recording strange temperature variations that seemingly are defying the, the, the laws of thermodynamics and that shouldn't take place. And these, these, you know, we know that they're being correctly measured and yet they're still taking place. And moreover, they're taking place coincident with people saying, I saw something, I heard something, I felt something. So the temperature is doing something unusual whilst uh, subjective, uh, you know, witness account is describing an unusual experience. Mm. Now that, that to me as an investigator is fascinating. And yet how many investigation groups actually bother to properly measure the temperature instead of rushing around the building with their MP3 recorder shouting, is there anybody there? Um, you know, there is, there is a lot of we could make advances in our understanding if we just put away the, the broken radios and the EVP recorders and the, you know, the... the, the and I was going to come on to EVP, it's just another frustration. Yeah, I thought I'd give you a segue into it there. Then. Um, it was just that, uh, you know, for, for me, I've sat through so many people saying, listen, listen. I remember, <laughs> I'm laughing to myself because it was just so mad. But we used to have... Um, a lady who absolutely, you know, she, she wanted to be a part of our group. And she, she was in there for a while until we had to ask her to go. But, and I say that not in a horrible way, but she would email several times a week with EVPs. And she really believed that her, her house was a portal uh, where spirits would go, you know, in and out of this portal in the garden. And the EVPs were always related to Michael Jackson. And we'd have influxes of them that 
would say different names like Elizabeth Taylor or McCulkey Culkin or all of these things, all these names that were just, so it was nothing like that. There, there was just no way and she would have all of these programs on a computer to enhance it and to peel it back and oh, it was impossible. And yet, whilst that is in its extreme form um, and she used to put her EVP recorder out constantly to pick up these um, sounds and then read whatever it was she wanted into them it it happens in almost every group you go into you know you have the, 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 the digital collector of sound whatever you're using whether that be a laptop, laptop or dictaphone whatever that might be and then somebody will always make sense of nothing because of that desire to well yeah but we, we also you're at, you're entirely correct. However, um, I think we there are two types of EVP, aren't there? There is the you know electronic voice phenomenon. This idea that yeah. the dead are using electronic means to communicate with the living is far from a new phenomenon. Um, yeah. You know, it goes way back to the very early days of the 20th century. Most people say, oh, it's happened in the 50s with the Swedish guy Jürgensen and then Raudiva. It doesn't. I mean, 50 years before that, people were, were studying this phenomenon and trying to use electronic devices to talk to the, to talk to the dead. Back in the 1920s, the, the researcher Herowood Carrington um, describes an early EVP uh, during a studio radio session with a medium. Um, where the disembodied voice breaking through on the speaker. Now that's completely different from this relatively new phenomenon which you're talking about, which has swept the paranormal world uh, in recent years. It's always been there. People have always, you know, had sound recorders, and it, it's sort of kind of kind of developed from um, from the from the EMF meter because you know, go back five, go back ten years, and EMF meters, the ghost detectors. Um, were the big thing. Every group had to have the K2, every group had to have the cell sensor, every group yeah. had to have their EMF meter. And people quickly discovered that these things weren't working as ghost detectors, that they'd spent $35, $50 on this device that wasn't actually detecting anything. Well, uh, no, you mean the ghost radar apps don't work on iPhone either? No, not really. But then what they did is, <laughs> they then started, they noticed that these things had flashing lights. Um, and, yeah. you know, they... They, they thought, well, hang on, we've got a communication device here. Uh, if the ghost moves towards it, maybe it can't detect the ghost, but maybe the ghost can flash the light. So they developed communication with the K2, you know, more lights, you know, which gradually develops into, you know, an area of electronic speech because it crosses into EVP. Yeah. And it's very, very, you know, we've done experiments, we've, we've played games with people where we can pretty well control what they're going to hear or what they think yeah. they're hearing. And the important thing with any EVP is, and it, if you want people to, it's, it's rather like drawing the red circle around the, around the, the picture in the orb or the, the ghostly shadow person hiding in the corner. Uh, the best EVPs are always the ones that you tell people in advance what they're going to hear. Uh, otherwise, people tend to hear different things because people hear what they want to hear. Yeah, uh, And it's very, very easy to do experiments where you play the same sound clip to ten people and they will hear completely different things if you don't tell them that, you know, what, what you want them to hear. And you don't actually have to say, you are going to hear... Uh, when people go on an investigation, the question is front-loaded. 
um, to prime the people's listening. If you say, how many people, can you tell us uh, how many people are in this room? Yeah. So people are listening for a number response. It doesn't matter what the number is, whether it's one, four, five. If there are eight living people and somebody here is 14, they go, oh, there's eight of us, there must be, you know, seven of them. Um, or six of them. It's in my yeah, massive You make terrible. sense of it in whatever way you yeah. want to. Can you, the easiest one to get people to uh, respond to, if you want to, you know, the simplest form of the EVP experiment uh, is to say, can you get it to say, you, know, you would get everybody to introduce themselves, so everybody knows everybody's name. Mm. And then you say, can you say my name? Can you say yeah. one of our names? Everybody is listening for the names. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, you know, whether, whatever it says, it will sound like the syllables of somebody's name. And then one person, it said Steve. And everybody goes, oh yeah, it did, didn't it? Even though they were thinking it said, leave, I believe, leaf, you know. It doesn't Fred. matter. Yeah. You are, you are, you are front-loading the question and you're priming the hearing of the, uh, of the of the people. And an excellent example of that is YouTube and the misheard song lyrics, where you can, yeah, yeah. you know, everybody who knows the ABBA song, once they've heard Chicken Tika, can never ever hear Chikatita any yeah. other way. Um, you know, it's it, it, it proof of this fallibility of the human bit, of the human mind. You know, we think that... <laughs> We know what we, I know what I saw, I know what I heard. Well, you just don't actually, because you're living in a constructed world. Um, you know, your brain constructs the world from the, from the, from the sensory information it is supplied. Uh, you know, at a very simplistic level, the only reason that you know the colour red is red is because you were taught that that's red and that, you know, that's blue and that's white and that's green. You know, yeah. you have no inherent understanding of that. Uh, likewise, you're your brain constructs an environment um, for you to live in. And you have to trust it. You have to rely on it. Um, your life depends on you relying on what your brain tells you is there. Because if you're driving along in your car, you come to a junction, an intersection, and you see another car, you know, you've got no time to say, oh, I'm hallucinating that, and then drive into it and die. Uh, you, know, you have to rely on the fact that your senses know it's there. But occasionally, your senses make a bad, you know, your brain makes a bad guess. It will hear a sound and it will try and make sense of it in a way that, that is not accurate. Uh, but you have to believe what you're hearing. You have to believe what you're seeing. That's why we see faces in clouds. That's why we, we see shapes in, in fires and in patterns where, where none exist. Encounters Michael Jackson's differences. Yeah, he does appear a lot, actually. Bless him. Yeah, you know, it's quite, it's quite uh, Derek Akora well, had a you know a British medium. Derek Akora had a a long <laughs> sort of uh, conversation with Michael, or was it the monkey? Was it Bobbles? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm disgusted. I wasn't given that opportunity. Clearly, <laughs> I missed the trick. Okay, and on that note, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to delve into. Um, well, it's not a controversial subject, actually. I think it's, it's out there for, for all to talk about, and that is how our um, television depiction of ghost hunting, um, how that, I suppose, forms our views uh, and the public's views and what we make of the recent um, Halloween Most Wanted.
So we're back in a couple of minutes. Welcome back, Steve. And we've been talking um, about, for the last maybe sort of 10, 20 minutes, about orbs and Steve and parasites' investigation into orbs and ruling out orbs as paranormal occurrences or activity. Yeah, and just, orbs are a load of balls. Yeah, and we're going to move on to um, how we depict paranormal investigation in our media and probably more directly with, with the Halloween edition of Most Haunted. So, Steve, I know some of your views on the Most Haunted um, Halloween special and probably share them. But for our US um, listeners, this was an episode that was almost like a Most Haunted comeback in the middle of a new series and was a real opportunity for Most Haunted to kind of shift things back to a format where they had reached popularity, where they were deemed to be, I'm not going to go so far as credible, but certainly they were a program that had many followers because they kind of looked at raw investigation as opposed to all the gimmicks that are in their more recent years. And you took over from Kieran at some point, and I can't remember what series it was in, to uh, work with Most Haunted when Kieran was moving. Tell me a little bit about that and then how you left that and, and how you then see their investigation techniques today. Well, in reality, I was only, I was only ever Kieran's stunt double um, for some of Series 8. While, while, as you say, he was relocating from the UK to France. Um, but it did give me an insight. I mean, I, people remember the six or seven episodes of Most Haunted that I was uh, front of camera on. Um, you know, I've done a lot more television than that, but nobody ever remembers documentaries. Um, but Most Haunted... Yeah. People will... The, the standard line is, it's a good thing because it makes people more aware of the paranormal, and it's a really bad thing because it makes the play uh, you know, more expensive. Yeah. Uh, because the location's full. That's the standard answer. In actual fact, that answer's you know, completely erroneous. Te television ghost hunting programs, like Most Haunted... Um, are, exist purely as entertainment. They are as close to reality as a soap opera. Uh, they are all staged reality, like uh, lizard lick towing, or the you know, uh, all the scenarios are created. It has never been an investigative program. If anybody believes that to be the case, then they are mis mistaken and misguided. What you are seeing is a program that is designed to sell advertising space, and therefore. In order for advertisers to buy revenue slots on the program, then the program has to attract viewers. And initially, you know, they were getting away with, we're going to spend a night creeping around a dark building, night vision would suffice. But what yeah. it did do, and where it's been a real harm to investigating, is that a lot of people cannot see that. Um, a lot of people believe that that... Uh, that the methods portrayed on the paranormal shows, be they in the UK or in the USA, and the equipment and the methods that are being used are an accurate gauge of, you know, what's out there. That people of years ago, 10 years ago, back in 2002, when Most Haunted arrived, the following year with Ghost Hunters in America, um, you know, people were happy to look for you know, floating phantoms. Floating phantoms became unfashionable. Then they had to fight demons, um, you know, do battle with these things. Then you've got ghost adventures where, you know, they, I mean, these guys, they're like, 
got like SWAT troops going in nowadays, uh, yeah. armed to the teeth with crazy bits of equipment. And if you can get your equipment onto one of these programs and you can charge the earth for it, and there are some wacky bits of equipment, some wacky ideas. Uh, it doesn't betray paranormal investigation. It's betrayed paranormal investigation. It has misled a lot of people into believing that the methods portrayed on television are in any way adequate or useful in determining or forwarding, uh, uh, increasing our depth and knowledge of what constitutes the paranormal. Uh, it's just wrong. It, it's, but as an entertaining genre, as a format, you know, for, for entertaining, it, it can be brilliant. And mm. because some of the episodes are shot in locations where people have reported experiences, it can also be fascinating because coincidentally, as I explained right at the start of, of, of tonight at Markham, uh, you know, people have had experiences there. Uh, and I had an experience while we were there with Most Haunted. Um, the experience, of course, didn't make it onto television because television, it wasn't exciting enough. And there are lots of times where I know that television crews have been in the right place at the right time, but have chosen not to broadcast the unusual, interesting thing that took place because it wasn't big enough or spectacular enough for television. They're too busy burying each other and hanging each other and electrocuting each other and throwing things and pushing things and screaming and rushing about. Um, it's 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 been a bad thing overall. It has caused it has meant that, as you said before, look at the cost of locations that 15 years ago you could get for a nod, a wink, and a cup of tea uh, to the to you know for a security guard for the night. Now you're paying a thousand pounds. Yeah. And that has actively damaged uh, our ability to investigate these fascinating locations. And what about, um, you know, specifically, because I, I, was, I was talking, I suppose, right from the beginning about when, when Most Haunted first came onto our screens, it was raw in the sense that everybody looked as though they were wary, they weren't sure what to expect, they were naive, they didn't have a huge amount of things to record by, their responses seemed to be... Um, quite genuine, they would you'd jump, you'd have the screamers, etc. And over the time, people got a bit tired of that format and they start to reinvent themselves because, as you've said, it's about advertising, it's about, you know, um, having the, 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 the viewers watching that, that program and once they're gone, so is the program. So gradually we get to the end of and then it becomes onto a different channel and it's kind of revamped. Mediums have gone uh, after a, a very long running difficulty it would seem with with mediums on the show and i think in fairness um well i i, I will say it, chris conway when he left posted a little bit about how he felt um in terms of the expectations on mediums in, in delivering information and all of a sudden all mediums went format changed we now have this new series which is incredibly it looks very low budget, um, very staged. It's the same things happening in the same sequence of events with um, Carl and Stuart consistently being either just off camera or the activity is just off camera or it's always happening to them or those kind of scenarios. I mean, what do you make of all that? 
I think they're just incredibly unlucky. Um, you know, <laughs> the camera's always pointing in the wrong direction. Well, maybe if they stop pointing it up the nose and at each other, they might actually capture something. It, it, it never has been anything other than a program designed to sell advertising. I think maybe, you know, the, the, for, for the first half of series one, there might have been a, you know, a, oh, let's see if we can catch a ghost on camera, because that would be really cool. Um, but beyond that, it's not. Um, the new series, it's not really any different than the early series. It's not really different than any other paranormal television program. Um, it looks low budget because it probably is. Uh, because it's not the, you know, it's not, you know, on Epic, on Series 11, it's not on a major channel. The, the budgets have got to be stripped back. The, the, the viewer numbers are down. The mark, therefore, the advertising revenue is down. Um, and in some ways, the program, you know, visually has benefited for that, for, uh, for that because it is, it does start to look more like the early series where it's rawer, it's yeah. less edited, it's, it's less well put together. But, you know, people don't forget... Then you have Ropegate. Well, yes, you do, don't you? I mean, people, people don't forget that, you know, it's always Carl and Stuart, the, the, the unlucky two that stuff happens to. And so it wasn't really any surprise when, you know, Carl got yanked up the stairs by, by Carl the ghost, um, <laughs> who, you know, sort of hauled him bodily. Unfortunately, uh, um, one of their own webcams caught him being hoist by his own petard. Um, as, as they, they detected what appeared to be a rope lashed around his waist uh, that mm. jerked him up into says, And Carl came back the next day onto YouTube and, and publicly said to, to uh, the serious fans who ask questions and not to the lunatic fringe, um, yeah. which was everybody else, uh, yeah. who dared question their, 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 that, you know, as a, he, he just threaded his camera ca cable to his waist. Now that's yeah. perfectly fine, a perfectly good explanation. Except that no other sequence in the entirety of that program or any other live can you find a picture of Carl walking around tethered with a camera cable uh, hanging off his belt. Moreover, there is a shot that, was um, it, that, that took place, several groups found it, um, of Carl's camera with its cables attached on top of one of the tables. Uh, yeah. And the camera, the camera cable is quite clearly black and infrared, not white, yeah. as Carl was making the claim in YouTube. So, you know, there was a... Uh, Carl's response then was uh, to post a picture on YouTube the following day, uh, on, sorry, on, on Twitter the following day, showing him uh, a group of most haunted fans and Stuart, uh, with Carl uh, tied to a rope and Stuart pulling it, uh, with a group of people laughing along at the jolly jape. Basically, they were sticking two fingers up at anybody that questioned what they were doing. Uh, yeah. You know, and saying, you know, we don't care what you think, we're still going to do it. We, you know, to heck with it. I saw that Chris Conway had um, a challenge and said, well, okay, so if all this activity occurs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, let's see, let us be observers, let the, let the most haunted mediums come along and be observers, and let's see what happens then. Yeah, I, 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 I read the challenge, um, but yeah. the, the, the problem with that challenge is, I mean, there, there are two things immediately wrong with the challenge. Um, first of all, um, you have the problem that it was only mediums uh, initially, um, and yeah. one of the mediums himself had left under a cloud in an earlier series, I think, you know, during yeah. series four or five. Um, you know, there was a, there was a, a cloud of, of, of question marks cast over one of the mediums there. Now, and inevitably, um, as I said to Chris uh, when he issued the challenge, uh, which I was supportive of generally, 
um, is that immediately anybody went along to you know, validate or, or to be independent witness to the claims that are being made, nothing would happen. You can't prove a negative, so they'll just turn around and say, "Well, nothing happened that night." So yeah. there you go. And of course, as soon as the, you know, as soon as the next episode, shot series, airs, the, you know, the Carl and Stewart, the double act, will will no doubt have another unfortunate incident where the paranormal takes place just off camera. Yeah. Oh, they're so unfortunate, those two. Or incredibly lucky. I mean, you know. They manage it every week, whereas in 35 odd years, I've probably been. You know, I don't think I've managed. I don't think I've managed as many paranormal encounters in in 35 years as they manage in one half a series. They're, they're incredibly skilled, and they're very. They're like magnets. They you are. Have, I, well, well, I know, I'm not allowed to say a particular word, but something sticks to a blanket. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Let's not cost them 200 quid. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out and sweat now. Producer is sweating. Okay, so the, probably the most important part, really, of, of this interview, Steve, is about all the research and the, and the, and ultimately then how you you portray that within your books. And you've got you know several books that people can can go and buy and find out more about. Um, your research into investigation and your findings. Talk us through, because um, I know you've got paracoustics, you've got your ghostology. So tell us, talk us through some of your books and where we can find them and what they're about. Okay. Um, well, chronologically, paracoustics came out in the summer uh, and was yeah. uh, at work between myself and the parapsychologist Cal, Cal Cooper uh, because. My PhD is looking at infrasound, low-frequency sound, um, and its, its involvement in paranormal experiences. And there is a whole raft of other sounds um, that are linked to paranormal, the footsteps, the rapping, EVP, telephone calls from the dead. And what we did is we got all of the people who are the leading investigators in their field, you know, uh, from the uh, both academics and, and uh, you know, uh, frontline investigators, who were studying some aspect of sound, and we can, we brought it all together into a book that um, that, stud, that that hopefully gives the the definitive, up to date account of sound and how it relates to paranormal experiences. It's paracoustic sound and the paranormal, um, and you can find it on Amazon with its bright yellow cover with the ghost wearing the headphones on the front. Um, but that was an edited work. Obviously, I contributed some, uh, some of the, the chapters, um, uh, and the, you know, they, they, they're a work that looks at infrasound, that looks at EVP, telephone calls from the dead, the psychology of sound, the physics of sound, uh, seance phenomena, the knocks, the raps, the, the, the bangs of poltergeists, the, the spiritual music that takes place, uh, you know, anything that more or less to do with sound and the broad paranormal we've tried to cover in paracoustics. Obviously, you know, we can't cover it in one book, so there will be things, areas where we've had to leave light. Um, the second book, which is just coming out as we speak, it's sort of half half out. Some Amazons, Amazon.com have got it. Um, the Kindle version is on all Amazons, but the Amazon.co.uk is. Uh, they all of the initial stock got sold, uh, so they're, they're running a little bit behind, but. They'll have everything fully stocked in by the 2nd of December, so Brilliant. load of time to get this. And ghostology is literally, um, 
it's, it's, the, it's the study of ghosts. It's what I do. It's what a lot of other people do. And it's those foundations. It's, it's not a how-to guide. Um, it's not a, uh, you know, this is what you will do to be a ghost hunter. Uh, ghostology, the art of the ghost hunter, is that. It's an art. It's, it discusses all of the different aspects that are important to ghost hunting, um, or that I believe are important to ghost hunting. Things like, you know, uh, the history of ghost hunting. We, there's a chapter on critical thinking, on evidence. Uh, amazing things and amazing people monitoring and measuring stuff. Temperature, electromagnetism. There's even a whole chapter on sound, which is sort of like a very condensed version of paracoustics. What do we do with the recordings? What do we do with the pictures that we've, that we've made? What do we do with psychics and mediums? How do we deal with the information that they give us? You know, uh, there's, there's a whole chapter on orbs, somewhat inevitably. Yeah. Um, and then there's a chapter uh, right at the end called Smart Ghost Hunting, which looks at the, the future of technology. Uh, so it's an amazing Christmas present, isn't it? For it would be an amazing Christmas present, and you can get it on Amazon. It's, it's got a bright green, sort of most haunted green cover with a, a, a friendly-looking ghost on the front. Uh, it's called Ghostology, The Art of the Ghost Hunter. There is another book called Ghostology, Ghostology 101. That's nothing to do with me. Okay, and, so... Uh, it's, look for the one with the, the green cover. How long does it take you to put together... Uh, it's it's probably taken me the last thirty five years to put together because right. I never I never planned on writing a book. It just I realised that the course that we that you that we used to do that you that you came on. Yeah. Um, I was I was running uh, I was putting together the course notes for that same course twenty fourteen version, um, mm. and realised that the course notes that we would you know were there was one hundred eighty pages of course notes. Uh, and it suddenly occurred to me that there was the, the core of, that you know, maybe instead of just giving them out as course notes, that there was actually a book. Yeah. Um, and so a word with the publisher, um, at the time we were just, just publishing Paracoustics at the time, and uh, lo and behold, Ghostology, uh, five months later, is just, just hitting the shelves in time for Christmas. Won't make it for Black Friday unless you're in America. Yeah. <laughs> And it even has, you know, books should reflect, I think, a little bit of the personality of the, of the author. And those that do know me know that I, I take what I do seriously. I very rarely take myself seriously. Um, and so, you know, the final chapter of the book it has a little surprise uh, that I'm not going to reveal that people will have to buy the book or download the Kindle version to find out. But it's a little bit, you know, it, it's that sort of personal twist. Uh, I think, you know... Are you going to do it on audiobook? Uh, I think the idea of me droning on for that length of time to somebody, you know... Um, I'll, leave, I'll leave the hypnotherapy tapes to Kieran. Uh, <laughs> he, he has the voice that would put, you know, would put people to sleep. Quite possibly. Okay, so um, a great idea, guys, if you're going to go out there and get Christmas presents for any aspiring ghost hunters or those people who have been doing this for years and who just want to kind of... I suppose revisit and reevaluate how they how they are investigating. Yeah, it's Great. not a book that you know. It's not it's not a book for um, you know. It won't it won't teach you how to. You know, it's not going to tell you that you're doing it wrong. Um, you know, it's not a book that you know, hey Steve knows best. Um, you know, I wouldn't dream of writing that sort of book. It's going to inspire uh, people to just rethink and think about the way they do things and think of different ideas. Yeah. 
hopefully. Oh. Steve, thank you so much for what has been an, an amazing interview. I've enjoyed every second of it, and um, you certainly don't drone on for, forever. Everything you say is so informative and um, inspiring. Inspiring, and I've I've really really enjoyed it. And you're more than welcome to come along to Margam or to Nita's Head, and um, and definitely hope to catch up soon. Anyway, but thank you so so much. To find out more about our.